Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you all again. The bad news is that the summer is on the way out. The good news is we get to pick up John's gospel once again, where we left off a couple of months ago. So do turn with me to John chapter 5. If you've got the church Bibles, that's page 890. And just in case it's all slipping out of your memory, we watched Jesus over the last few chapters uh, have his first encounter with the establishment in Jerusalem, where he was superficially warmly received. And then he made his way home via Samaria, where he was wonderfully welcomed before coming once again to his own in the town of Cana, where the whole book kicked off. And as in Jerusalem, things in Cana looked well on the surface, but were not so wonderful underneath. Nevertheless, in his grace, uh, we saw him last time wonderfully save the life of a little boy. And then after a period of time passes, we come to John chapter 5, where he returns once again to Jerusalem. And so when we hear John in this chapter and with increasing intensity as the book goes on, talk about the Jews, remember this isn't the Jewish people as a whole that he's talking about. It's very specifically John's way of talking of the religious establishment in Judea the Jews in Jerusalem who run the temple system and who become rather confrontational with Jesus from now on. So John chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gates a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, and withered. One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your beds and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who'd been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, 
and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, let's bow our heads and pray before we come to look at this together. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Lord Jesus Christ, would you speak that powerful voice to us now as we come to your holy word? And through your Holy Spirit, would we tremble as we see you in all your majesty? And would our hearts sing as we see you in all your grace? Amen. The day began with such a simple task, get the baby a bottle. But as it's warming in the microwave, something comes up. And two minutes later, you notice there is boiling milk bubbling over the counter and dripping down onto the floor. And the dog has burnt its tongue trying to lick it up. And the kids are fighting about who has to clean up the mess. And the neighbors are at the door wondering what all the howling is. And an hour or so later, the baby is still sitting in the high chair, completely forgotten, wondering what happened to her breakfast. Well, John chapter 5 all began with such a simple task. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does something extraordinary. He gives new life to a man who spent a lifetime in despair. And he does it with nothing but words. It's extraordinary, and yet we're used to seeing Jesus do things like that, aren't we? And yet, as this simple story of a miraculous healing carries on, it develops into the mother of all stushies. And within a paragraph, the man at the pool is forgotten altogether. And we will have to spend another two Sundays clearing up the mess, dealing with the fallout. This is sign number three of John's gospel. And with this one, all of the tension that's been bubbling away beneath the surface bursts out into the open. This is the miracle, verse 18, that costs Jesus his life. And the opposition will grow and grow until the end of this big unit of the book. When something very odd happens, we get an almost identical scene playing out again. Jesus comes to another pool on another Sabbath where there's another man with a long history of illness. This one here has spent an entire lifetime weak and lame. He's been an invalid for more or less the entire life expectancy of his age. In chapter 9, it's a man born blind. Both times, the authorities demand to know who healed him, and the man at the center of it all doesn't know. Both times, Jesus goes and finds him again later on. Both times, we're told that Jesus is doing the work of his father. Both times, there is an almighty stushy that introduces a long sermon from Jesus explaining who he is and what he does and how he relates to his father. And the only differences seem to be an implied contrast 
between the two men who are healed. They respond in very different ways. But these two pool punch-ups bracket off a big unit of the book with growing hostility to Jesus, which leads us into Jesus' penultimate sign, the raising of his friend Lazarus, and the end, the failure of his public ministry and his decisive rejection and final showdown with Jerusalem. And so John is not like Mark. He is not going to hit us with miracle after miracle. Each one that he does show us is doing a lot of work in this book, introducing big units of teaching. And the significance here is more in all of the fallout that it provokes than in the healing itself. And yet this healing in itself is a sign. It's called that at the start of chapter two. It's meant to point us to something. Jesus is at a pool crowded with desperate people. And yet he doesn't heal them all, just as we don't expect him to work healing miracles today when every one of us faces cancer or old age or when the people we love grow frail. No, Jesus singles out one man from that huge mass of people, a man who doesn't even seem particularly friendly or interested in him. He is weak, withered, willfully apathetic, without any knowledge of Jesus, verse 13, without even a spark of faith in what Jesus can do for him, verse 7. And yet sovereignly, graciously, Jesus chooses this one individual. And in their interaction, John clearly wants us to see something of the power and glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And so before we rush into the weeds of chapter 5 and we forget all about this man and his miracle, let's pause for a while on verses 1 to 18 and ask what it is that this sign shows us in Jesus. The day God himself, veiled in human flesh and yet in all his power and glory, showed up at the Lido. And let's make sure that we marvel and we worship him for what we see and we let it deepen our confidence in the one we call Lord. Because the first thing we see in verses 1 to 9a is a voice like no other, a voice that can reach to the dead. Now, we don't know quite how long this is after Jesus returned to Cana. Maybe a year or so has passed by verse 1. But we find Jesus back in the capital for an unnamed Jewish festival, surrounded by the lost and broken people of Jerusalem. Notice the place name, the Sheep Gate. The commentary suggests it's where you could buy or prepare sheep to offer in the temple for sacrifice. Probably the pool was where you're meant to wash them, prepare them for an offering. A five-roofed colonnade is basically a posh gazebo. It wasn't that long ago, actually, that the archaeologists dug it up they always thought it never existed. There it was. But in Jesus' day, rather than sheep, it sheltered this tragic flock 
of the blind and the lame and the desperate, all searching for a miracle. The very people Isaiah said would one day leap for joy when the glory of Yahweh returned to his people. And I wonder if John is beginning to trail a theme that Jesus will major on at pool punch-up number two later on, because when you look closely, there is a fair bit of shepherding imagery in this story that happens around the sheep gates. Here is the true shepherd of Israel, the one who knows his sheep. See that word? The one who seeks them out when they're lost. The one whose voice they're meant to respond to. And when he finds himself among this collection of broken sheep, verse 6, he sees one man in particular and he knows him as only a shepherd would. He knows that this man has been here hoping for a miracle for a long, long time. But he seems to know him even more deeply than that because he asks him something very strange, doesn't he? Do you want to be healed? Maybe he's just trying to encourage him to come forward, to come to Jesus with his need. But however you try and explain it, it's a strange old thing to ask a man who's been looking for a miracle all his life. Somehow, though, it's as if Jesus sees right into the very depths of this man's despair. Could it be that after all this time, all these disappointments, he's actually given up on hoping? The saddest people that you ever care for are the ones who deep down have got so used to being unwell that they don't really want to get better anymore. There's actually a, a level of security in the label they've lived with for so long. And if that's true of our physical disabilities, well, Jim Phillip points out very painfully, it can be true of us spiritually as well. We can be all too aware of our need, our problems, and yet prefer that Jesus leave us alone, leave us where we are. Maybe that explains the apparent apathy we see from this man later on, his lack of interest in the one who gave his life back to him. Could that strange question then from Jesus be meant to relight a little spark of hope that died a long time ago? All we get of this man is a, a teeny pencil sketch, but Jesus knows him all the way down. And isn't it wonderful to have a savior like that? You can see even the things like the self-pity that we hide so deeply from other people. And because he sees them, he can help them. Well, the man's answer is desperately sad, isn't it? I have no one. The last three chapters of this book have introduced Jesus as Israel's divine bridegroom, the one who fills every longing. And yet here is an Israelite who believes he has nobody. There's no one to help me. Apparently the superstition was that when the jacuzzi bubbles come on, you've all got to dive into the hot tub and the first one to enter the water gets into the prize draw with a chance of winning a miracle and yet this man can't even walk. How is he meant to get into the pool all by himself? It's a picture of sheer 
helpless, lonely despair. And there's nothing in his reply to Jesus to suggest he thinks Christ might be the answer. He sees no power in Jesus at all to solve the problem, does he? And so the real desperation in this man goes far deeper. He is spiritually dead. He's lived and wasted a lifetime here. And if we're brutally honest, we often find people like this a drag to be around, don't we? Chronically needy people. Even his friends, it seems, have given up on him. But that is not what Jesus is like. He sees his lack of interest, even his lack of any personal faith in him, and yet he overlooks it all. Calvin says something really helpful here. What John is showing us is a mirror of the forbearance which every one of us experiences from Jesus on a daily basis when we keep our attention on the means which are within our reach. And yet even so, Christ shows how far his goodness goes beyond those narrow limits of our faith. How good and how patient Jesus Christ is with every one of us. And notice how he does it. Jesus doesn't wait for the jacuzzi to come on and then give the guy a shove in. No, there is no need for living waters from the pool because we know by now that Jesus has the real thing to give, all from within himself. And so he speaks a word, a single Greek word, a command, that will be very significant later in this chapter. Rise. Just cast your eyes down to verse 25, where Jesus explains himself. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What do we see then in this sign? Well, we see the voice of the Son of God, majestic and powerful and full of divine authority, reaching down into the most desperate of situations, a man who has lived a whole lifetime of sorrow and is lost in self-pitying spiritual death. And in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, it's all undone. Even with all our wonders of modern medicine, we still cannot make a paralyzed man stand up on command, let alone pick up his mattress and walk off. Even if we figured out how to make nerves regrow and spinal cords heal, it would take months of intensive physio to build back all those wasted muscles, repair a lifetime of disuse. Jesus does it all in the space of a heartbeat. It's a miracle of recreation, something only the Creator's voice could ever do. And it's only a sign one physical healing, but it's a sign that this is a savior whose voice is powerful enough to raise the dead. He can reach us even when we're that far gone, and better still, he cares enough to do it. Which brings us, secondly, from 9b through to verse 15, 
to the second thing we see in Christ here, a Lord who will search for the sinful because he cares enough to do it. And we learn that from the sort of muddle, this tragicomic muddle that follows this miracle, the fallout of it all. Because John has kept a key detail of the story from us, hasn't he, until the end of verse 9, where he says, oh, and by the way, that day was a Sabbath. And immediately then, the man who was healed gets attacked by the Jerusalem authorities for breaking their Sabbath rules. Now, what he's actually done isn't against any of the Old Testament laws, but it was against the Mishnah, the rules that they'd added to them to make extra sure nobody broke the Torah. You couldn't carry anything from one domain to another, and that included your mattress. That is still how it is, by the way, for very conservative Jewish communities. I spent some time this summer with a non-believing professor from Israel who told me about hilarious debates he'd had recently with a friend over whether or not it was legal to tear off your loo paper on the Sabbath or whether you needed to get it all ready the night before, just in case. And so at one level, it's a comic scene here, isn't it? Imagine some giant, shiny spaceship landing on the Royal Mile But as the door is descending and the first alien to set foot on planet Earth is stepping out to give his take-me-to-your-leader speech, nobody is paying any attention because they're all involved in some massive argument about whether or not it's allowed to park there. Five times in five verses, did you notice John repeats the same phrase, take up your bed and walk. You can't take up your bed and walk on a Saturday. Well, the bloke, he healed me. He told me to take up my bed and walk. Who told you to take up your bed and walk? That's outrageous. And what have they all missed? There is a flipping lifelong invalid standing in front of them who has just taken up his bed and walked, which means there's someone who's healed him. And that someone gave him a direct command that doesn't seem to give a stuff about their traditions. Someone who speaks with a divine, authoritative voice and is milling about right now in Jerusalem. Someone who judges right from wrong, all by himself. And then just to make the scene even more ridiculous, verse 13, even the man who was healed hadn't bothered to stop and ask who he was. That man who'd given his life back to him. Jesus had just quietly slipped away through the crowds. Then when he's challenged, the man just shifts the blame onto Jesus, away from himself. Nothing to do with me. I was just sitting by the pool, and this interfering busybody came and healed me. He told me to carry the wretched thing. Maybe I'm being a little harsh on him, but it's the contrast with the blind man at pool punch-up number two which makes me a little more confident that we're not meant to see this man in too flattering a light. More on that in a moment. But while nobody knows where Jesus is or even who he was, Jesus seems to effortlessly find this man again somewhere in the temple precincts, and he gives him the warning of verse 14. I don't think it's a general warning. (laughs) See, you're well. 
sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus knows that there is something worse even than losing an entire lifetime the way this man already has. It is possible to lose your eternity. And in his love, Jesus doesn't just want to heal this man's body. He wants to give him his soul back. One of the many contrasts between this healed man and the one in chapter 9 is that there, Jesus explicitly rules out any connection between the blind man's sin and his suffering. Here, he explicitly puts them together. This man has repenting to do. Now, that link is never wooden or simplistic, but sometimes, the Bible is very clear, sometimes God does use suffering to wake us up to that reality. We have repenting to do. So notice the two ways then that Jesus is working through this sign. He's working as life giver, but he's also working as judge, as Lord. Two very God-like ways to work, and both of those are going to become important as the chapter progresses next week. Well, we never learn how the man responded. We just aren't told much about him, except that the first thing he did was go to the authorities and tell them who Jesus was. And my hunch there is that it's a sign he just didn't like being told to repent. The next time this happens, the blind man does the exact opposite. He defends Jesus before the authorities rather than shift the blame. And instead of going to them, they cast him away. And then when he is met again by Jesus, he falls down and worships him. It's a very different response, and so it's hard not to contrast the two. This first man is not just lame and lonely. Even if we're charitable to him, he is lukewarm at best, and he's lost. And yet for all that, for all that, Jesus did come to find him a second time. Knowing who he was, he came to give him a chance of something more than just a mended body, to seek out this one stubborn, sinful sheep for a second time. Isn't that incredibly kind? A Lord who will search for the sinful. And then lastly, in verses 16 to 18, we learn the most wonderful thing this passage has to tell us about Jesus but it's also where the whole thing goes nuclear because the claim Jesus makes is about the most provocative thing he could possibly say. It means that this shepherd of lost and broken sheep that John has been showing us is not just any old shepherd. He is the eternal, divine shepherd of Israel, a shepherd who won't put down his work. Now, initially, verse 16, the opposition to Jesus is all about his working on the Sabbath, isn't it? And we're fairly ready for that as Bible readers, aren't we? It's a charge that Jesus is constantly facing in the Gospels, and so we've got a whole battery of answers to it up our sleeves, because for us, 
it seems important to defend Jesus against any impression that he broke God's law, that his obedience was anything less than perfect. And so perhaps we want to dive in here straight away and give a legal defense that actually what Jesus had done didn't break the Torah, just human rules. Or perhaps we want to offer a kind of big Bible picture argument, point out that they've misunderstood the whole point of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath was made for man, that it was about celebrating God's rest when he'd made a perfect world and enjoying the promise that rest points us towards new creation, new life. And so in fact, what Jesus has done here in giving this man a whole new life and taking away his burden, that is a picture of everything the Sabbath is truly all about. And they're so busy nitpicking hypocritically that they can't see it. Well, if this was any other gospel, those sorts of answers would be great answers to offer. And we so expect to see something like that here that often the commentaries seem to veer off into them out of habits and miss the whole shock of what actually happens. Because Jesus could easily have pointed out any of those things this time if he'd wanted to, couldn't he? He could have made any sort of defense. But he doesn't. In fact, he doesn't make any attempt to defend himself against Sabbath breaking at all. Instead, he says something so outrageous that it forces the Jewish leaders to jump right over the whole Sabbath issue to the real heart of things. Who Jesus claims to be and why they really hate him so much. Verse 17, yes, it's the Sabbath, and yes, I am working. Hands up, you've got me. My father is working until now, and so I am working. You see, there is some work that God can never put down. After six days back in Genesis, God rested from his work of creation but never for one second has he rested from his works of providence, of sustaining and preserving and governing all his creatures and all our actions. And the shock here is that Jesus doesn't deny his work. Instead, he puts his work right alongside that work of God the Father. He is my Father, verse 17, not our Father, the way Jews would sometimes pray together in a synagogue, but my father in a unique way. I am his eternal son. His works are my works. Now, it's not an I am saying there. The grammar is different, but the claim Jesus makes in verse 17 is every bit as nuclear. And they don't miss the implications, do they? Verse 18 the reason they would kill him was that he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But he is. We've just watched a man giving life and rendering judgments, the works of a true man, and yet surely one who is somehow equal in being and power and glory with God the Father. 
and filled with all the same gracious love. Because the works of the Trinity are undivided. They can't be picked apart. Remember what Jesus told us in chapter 4? His very food is to accomplish the saving work of God the Father. And so in the next paragraph, Jesus is going to single out two great works that God the Eternal Father shares with God the Eternal Son. In verse 21, there's his work of raising the dead and giving life. And in verse 22, there's his work of judging the world. The two great works that this sign was all about pointing us towards. So unless you want to charge God the Father with Sabbath-breaking for sustaining the stars and the planets right now, well, it's as if Jesus says, you'll have to allow me, God the Son incarnate, to do the same thing. Now, that is heady stuff, but what does it mean for us sitting here? Often when we think of Jesus as our shepherd, we think of it as a kingly title, don't we, shepherds? But first and foremost, the great shepherd of the Bible is divine. He is the keeper of Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, who never puts down his work. And that is a wonderfully comforting truth. What if for 24 hours every week, God gave up on the work of sustaining your every breath, of listening to your prayers, of counting your tears, of feeding the sparrows and clothing the fields with lilies? Praise heaven, he never does. And so praise heaven, Jesus never does. He can't. Our resurrection and our final judgment and our every longing are in the hands of somebody infinitely powerful and infinitely glorious. And so his third great sign tells us that we have a shepherd who never, ever puts down the work of caring for you and me when it comes to ruling and rescuing his sheep, Jesus Christ is a workaholic. And yet he is one with infinite resources. So he will never fall asleep on the job. His attention will never drift. He will never give up on his people. Even when we are chronically needy and indifferent and full of self-pity, and he will never lack the power to do everything his love demands. So what better hands could you possibly commit yourself to? None. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, and Lord of lords, and judge of all the earth, we tremble and worship you for the majesty and glory and power that has been yours together with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. And we love and adore you 
for the sovereign grace that sought out each one of us whom you gave your life to redeem. You found us, Lord, when we were weak and broken and stubbornly in our sin. And in your kindness, you spoke words of life into our hearts. And what a wondrous thing it is to know that every moment of every day, you are working through that same powerful grace to care for your needy people. So help us, we pray, to commit ourselves with ever more trust into your arms of love. For we ask it to the praise of your name. Amen.